Well, we're so glad you've joined us today. Uh, we're continuing the series of scripture talks that we started a number of months ago, actually based on the Sermon on the Mount called Sacred Reflections. But just before we get started with today's teaching theme, uh, if you're new to church or new to faith, uh, we started um, a course actually last Wednesday called Alpha. And uh, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. It's uh, this whole idea of getting started on a journey uh, or adventure of faith with Jesus. And you might have searching questions. You may have some um, uh, areas of interest to explore in the area of the Christian faith. And so it's not too late to join. You can head over to kingstreet.org and you can find a link to our Zoom platform. Uh, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. It's a seven-week course, which means we have six weeks left. You're welcome to come and join us and spread the word to friends and family and We've actually started a platform for those who speak Mandarin, and we have almost 20 Mandarin-speaking uh, people who are part of our Alpha uh, Mandarin Alpha course. And then we have uh, you know, 15 or so who are part of our uh, English-speaking Alpha course, and it's a wonderful way to learn more about the Christian faith. So you might be early on, or you might be at the edges of faith. Uh, you're invited to come and join us. Also, before we're done this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. So if you can prepare a uh, beverage of your choice and a cookie or a cracker, and uh, we will observe communion together before we're done. So um, we have, again, been on this adventure, um, walking through, not running, through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And uh, believe it or not, this is part 17, and uh, it's been going on for some time. And we will be done when Jesus has done his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, again, when we walk, we notice more than when we're running. And so we are pacing ourselves as we move through this teaching. Uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, this morning's teaching theme is about uh, treating people well. And if we understand anything about Jesus, he holds people in high regard. And he invites us actually earlier on the Sermon on the Mount uh, to be considering what it means to treat people well, even those who don't treat us very well. He says, you know, we should uh, not just love our, our, our family and friends and neighbors, but we should love our enemies. And we should pray for those who mistreat us or persecute us. And so life in the kingdom of God, we're learning as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, is about um, love for God and living rightly before him, and also love for neighbor and living rightly with them. And so uh, this teaching this morning is really focused on the, uh, we could call it the horizontal dimension of our faith. The vertical dimension is our relationship with God, and the horizontal dimension is our relationship with one another. And um, so our passage to ponder that we've been taking with us over the last number of weeks is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, uh, verse 20. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness or your approach to right living before God and others, unless your approach to righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, Jesus says that there needs to be a new approach to living and one that's over and above and beyond that of the religious leaders of the day uh, where Jesus presents the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not about checking boxes. It's not about just doing the right thing. It's about being the right person, doing the right thing for all the right reasons. And so there is an uncovering or a um, rediscovery of the spirit of what God is inviting us into, which is fundamentally a relationship with him. 
And uh, so we're living at a time in history where there is tremendous polarization, whether it be political or national or moral or maybe even spiritual uh, or religious uh, polarization. It is all around us where we find it so natural to define ourselves by the circle we belong to and consider those outside the circle to be outsiders. The us versus them mentality is alive and well in our culture these days. And Canada is not a perfect place by any means. It's not heaven yet. Uh, we still have some challenges here in our own country. And you've probably read or seen in the news recently where different people have decided to uh, discriminate and um, you know, work against or even ostracize or antagonize those in the Asian community. And uh, that's just unacceptable behavior for anyone in our country, but especially those in the kingdom of God. Um, we want to be the kinds of people who build bridges, not burn them. And we want to be the kinds of people who don't antagonize, but receive others and invite them into our circle. And so um, human beings, we love to, we love to create circles. And uh, when we are at our best, we leave the circle open so other people can join us. And when we're not at our best, we, you know, trace a real thick line around it and we close the circle and we just don't let anybody else in. And we look with disdain on those who are outside. And so, um, to be human means that we often create mental models for ourselves of exclusivity. And uh, we like to, again, think of ourselves more highly than others who are outside the circle. And that's a problem. And that's a problem in Jesus' day, and it's a problem in our day. And excluding and mistreating other people, just Jesus will have none of it. He'll have none of that. And um, there was this moment in, uh, in the gospel account, Luke's gospel, actually chapter 9, beginning at verse 51, where the disciples were sent out on a mission and they were to go to Jerusalem and make some preparations, or they were to go to Samaria uh, to make some preparations for Jesus. And this is the event that happens. These are ones, the ones who spend a lot of time with Jesus. Um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51. As the time drew near for him, which is Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, now you, you got to just sort of pause here for a moment. How anyone could say this is hard for us to comprehend, but this is what they said. These are two of Jesus' close companions. They said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? And this is a, a, a look back to the day of Elijah when he called down heaven and there were called down fire, I'm sorry, from heaven and burned up the sacrifice when there was a, um, um, a sacrifice competition, you could call it, between uh, the prophet of God and the prophets of Baal. And so James and John say, should we bring down judgment and call down judgment on these people? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. He corrected them. And so they went to another village. So really quickly, this story just seems a little bit bizarre where two of Jesus' close friends seem like they want to pronounce judgment on a whole community of people just because they didn't receive them properly. And um, it's dramatic language that's used in, in Luke's gospel, chapter nine. But the backstory is that there were two circles. Uh, the Samaritans were deemed as like hybrids of the Jewish community. They had intermarried with the Assyrians during the time of the Assyrian occupation. And uh, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as sellouts, as uh, intermingling again and diluting their Jewishness. And then with that uh, intermingling and dilution of their Jewish heritage, there came an adoption of a different kind of form of worship where they saw Jerusalem not as the place to go and gather for worship, but another mountain altogether, Mount Gerizim. 
And uh, so there was this us versus them mentality that emerged between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Uh, the Jewish people looked down on their Samaritan brothers and sisters, literally. And uh, so there was this antagonism, this hostility, and it kind of boiled over when James and John called down, or they said to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And um, Jesus would have none of it. Jesus makes no room for us to return evil for evil. He makes no room for us to antagonize another. He makes no room for us, as we discussed earlier in previous weeks, to pronounce judgment over other people. Uh, Jesus is always inviting us to open the circle, to invite other people in. In fact, you'll find in the gospel account that Jesus deliberately goes to Samaria and has a conversation with a Samaritan woman who had lived a relatively immoral life, but he spoke with her with dignity and respect. Then he invited her in to drink from the water that would quench her thirst forever to be invited literally into the kingdom of God. And then uh, again, Jesus, when he tells a story about uh, what it means to be a really good neighbor, he doesn't elevate the priests or the religious leaders of his day. He actually elevates the Samaritan, who was the one who took time and spent resources and looked after the person who had fallen into the hands of robbers on their way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is always looking to open the circle and to invite other people in. So here's our one verse for this morning, taken from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, remember, we're walking and not running. This is the teaching of Jesus, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 12. And we could literally see our world be turned upside down. There would be a revolution, a revolution that would be seismic uh, if we were to live out this kind of teaching on a broad scale from corner to corner to corner to corner in this world. Um, okay, here's Jesus. Do to others whatever you would have them or whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. So Jesus says again, not just say, not just think, he says, act. He says, do to others what you would want them to do to you. And so, wow, if we could adopt this kind of kingdom ethic, it could literally change our world. And um, so what does it mean to really treat one another well? We're going to take a look at three biblical principles that um, undergird or support the teaching that Jesus provides for us here. Do to others as you would have them do to you. All the law and the prophets hang on this idea. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll take a look at a passage from Colossians chapter 3 that complements Jesus' teaching in this regard and gives us some handles to hang on to that we can put into practice in the week ahead. So here are the three quick uh, biblical principles that undergird this idea of do to others what you would want them to do to you. Okay, so the first one is this. Spirituality is relational. Uh, remember, when uh, people asked Jesus, the religious leaders, what the greatest commandment was, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. That's the whole point of life with God, is to love him wholeheartedly with the totality of your person, and then to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. This whole idea of spirituality is not just life with God. It's life with God full-on love of God, and then life with neighbor and full love of neighbor. So spirituality is always relational. And then John, remember this, people can change because it was James and John who said to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans? And then John, the same John writes 
an epistle in the New Testament, and he writes these words. He says, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, they cannot love God whom they have not seen. And so John has a um, reorientation of the soul by which he sees, he sees things differently now. And he says, we can't claim love for God and then hate our brother or our sister. Can't call down fire on our neighbors. That's just not consistent with uh, the profession of faith for those who say they love God. So spirituality is relational. Secondly, people are worthy of respect and dignity. All people are worthy of respect and dignity. Indiscriminate of political ideology or ethnic um, uh, identity or of gender or of moral persuasion or of spiritual conviction. Um, all people, indiscriminate of all those categories are worthy of respect and dignity of love and honor. And uh, one thing that's happening in our world these days, it's part of the uh, downside of the progress of technology is that we spend a lot of time behind screens. And sometimes when we only relate through the medium of a screen, sometimes the screen can potentially um, depersonalize the other. And, and what actually happens is we say things, whether it be through text form on a social media platform, uh, or maybe when we're on a screen and we're just squares on a Zoom platform or something, we may be emboldened to say things to people or to text things to people that we would never say if we were in their presence in the same room. And so um, all people are worthy of respect and dignity. In fact, it's a biblical idea. Um, Peter writes, again, a close friend of Jesus in a, an epistle he wrote in chapter 2, verse 17 of his first epistle. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. And so what if the emperor is a mean-spirited person? Or what if he is a tyrant? Uh, Peter doesn't give us excuses. He says here, there are no qualifications. He says, honor the emperor. And so it's important to honor the office of those who find themselves in positions of authority. We may disagree with their tactics or their methods. Uh, we may disagree with their perspective or their values. Uh, we may, in a democracy like we're a part of, get a chance to vote at a future time and elect a different kind of leader. But Christians are called to um, honor offices that leaders in authority occupy. And uh, they need to be respected. That's a biblical idea. And when disrespect for authority is in full force, uh, we experience chaos and disorder. And you can pretty much assume that there will eventually be a breakdown of that society. There needs to be a measure of honor and respect toward the office of those who occupy places of authority. And so um, people, all people, indiscriminate of ethnicity and political persuasion and morality and spiritual convictions, they are uh, worthy of respect and dignity. And then finally, the third principle that undergirds the teaching of Jesus is this. Spiritual and emotional maturity are interconnected. Spiritual and emotional maturity are interconnected. There's a pastor, actually he's a former pastor now. He is a podcaster, I guess, out of New York City, Pete Scazzaro. Um, he is known for the statement that it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. 
Um, we are whole people. You can't compartmentalize the self and say, I'm spiritually well adjusted while being emotionally and relationally poorly adjusted. Um, we are a whole person, a whole package, and uh, we are interconnected. And so our spiritual maturity is linked to our relational maturity, our emotional maturity. And um, so again, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, and he says this about an emotion that all of us struggle with from time to time. He says, in your anger, do not sin. He says, don't let the sun go down. Let, don't let a day pass while you are still angry. In other words, before you put your head on your pillow at night, do your absolute best to deal and process with that angry emotion so that it doesn't get into your soul in such a toxic way that you carry it into the very next day and then the next day and have it characterize a large portion of your life. And so our emotional well-being is connected to our spiritual maturity. They are both interconnected. And um, there's this beautiful passage, and with this, we'll land our teaching. And I'm going to give you some handles to live by in just a moment. But Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, the same writer, Paul, he says these words. He says, since God chose you to be holy people, which means different, to live a different kind of lifestyle, to swim upstream in a culture that says we should go this way, we go the opposite way often says we're supposed to be holy people whom we're loved. So he says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We'll pause there for just a moment. But Paul says, it's really important that you put on your clothing. Before you go outside into the world and relate with others, you need to make sure you're well-dressed. Um, don't go out in a manner that's where you're unprepared. And he says, the clothing we should put on has everything to do with being tender-hearted. That's a disposition we carry with us. We're supposed to be merciful in our orientation toward others, not demanding that people pay us what they owe us, uh, but to be so merciful, inclined towards um, not giving people what they deserve, but actually lavishing grace on them and giving them what they don't deserve. So tender-hearted mercy, kindness, we could use a revolution of kindness in our world, humility, remembering who we really are, not thinking too highly of ourselves, gentleness, this is a characteristic of Jesus. He was a gentle person um, and being patient, waiting for others, not demanding that they be somewhere where they're not. So we'll keep reading here. He says, we're supposed to put on that kind of clothing. And then he says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. He continues, above all, back to the clothing metaphor here, clothe yourselves with love, put it on, just make sure you're wearing <laughs> the whole garment of love over your whole person, which binds us all together. He uses plurality language here, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace, beautiful peace of Christ, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Let peace literally be like a ruler who takes his seat on the throne of your life and let him have his way literally where he rules the, the day in your own heart and life. For as members of one body, again, plurality, now he brings us to a oneness. As members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So at the end of the day, we put on love. It's the garment we wear and it's all kind of shrouded, so to speak, in this attitude of gratitude that we take with us. So here's the three quick handles for us. Treating people well requires being well personally. 
verse 12 says that we need to clothe ourselves and we need to receive the love of God for ourselves and then take on those characteristics and attributes so that we become um, an increasingly whole person so that when we move into the world, we export our wholeness rather than our brokenness. It's been said before that wounded people have a tendency to wound others. And when we feel unloved, we will have a very hard time loving others. And when we're empty, there won't be much to overflow out of our lives that adds benefit and value to others. And so we need to cling to that idea that we are loved and we are valued and we are chosen by God. And as we work on ourselves, we can export wholeness to other people. Uh, number two, the second handle to hold on to is this one. Treating people well will lead us to choose forgiveness over finding fault. Uh, this passage su suggests to us that people will offend us on life's journey. Um, and we're to make allowance for those faults in others. Um, we need to have a disposition of forgiveness rather than a disposition of fault finding. Um, I, and I really liked the word allowance. When I was a young kid growing up, my parents would give me an allowance. It was just a privilege that I received for being in the family. Um, an allowance makes room for, um, for margin of error, so to speak. When, when we uh, make a poor golf uh, shot, uh, we call it a mulligan, but really it's an allowance. Um, Paul writes here and says, we ought to make allowance for one another. Leave some space for flaws and faults and imperfections. Uh, if, if we don't have an allowance, then we expect everybody to live at a standard that they can't live up to. And not only will we harm them by being critical, we'll actually harm ourselves because we'll be chronically disappointed all the time because others can't live up to our expectations. And so um, there's a, a woman in our church, I was just emailing her this week, and her signature at the bottom says this, don't find, don't find fault, find a remedy. I like that. Don't find fault, find a remedy. In other words, get on the solution side. Um, don't, don't magnify what's gone wrong. Spend your energy on, on what it would require to make it right. And then finally, the last handle to hold on to this week is treating people well will require that we remember we are all connected and we are all connected to one another. Um, the difficult people in our lives, and we meet them from time to time, and it's hard to imagine, I know, but we are also the difficult people for others uh, to, to relate to as well. Um, they are someone's spouse, they're someone's daughter, they're someone's brother, they're someone's grandson, they're someone's parent. Um, they belong to someone. And it's hard to imagine that when we're driving down the 401 and somebody cuts us off or when we're working down the hall from someone in the office and they just sort of step on our toes, so to speak, and they're unkind in some way. Um, those individuals that are difficult for us to like and love, they belong to a circle and they are cared for by that circle. They matter. And ultimately that circle includes God who made that person in their in his image and likeness and he has put them in the crosshairs of his unconditional love and he is reaching to them if he hasn't already adopted them into his family as a son or daughter he is working to bring them into his family and so we need to always remember that we are connected to one another and um, I think oftentimes if we were to Use the analogy of driving down the 401 and somebody cut us off and they were unkind and gave us an inappropriate hand gesture or something like that. And we were to recognize them that they were our cousin or our neighbor. We would respond very differently. 
And they would respond very differently as well because there's accountability and there is a sense in which there's relational connection. And so if we could just look a little higher above everything to see that we are all ultimately connected. Now, I know even when we see ourselves as ultimately connected, we're not always at our best. In the early chapters of Genesis, Cain took his brother out to the field and he killed him and he was his brother. He had accountability, he had relational knowledge, but he still acted out. Humans aren't perfect. But if we could just see that we are more connected than we realize, it may help us treat each other well. So if you haven't prepared a beverage of your choice and a cracker or a cookie, you can do so now. If you're new to our YouTube channel, new to faith, um, we're going to celebrate communion. This is something that Jesus invites us to do. And it's always to be done in remembrance of him. And uh, so on the night that he was betrayed, he celebrated Passover with his disciple friends. And he uh, chose to draw significance to the cup, which was um, symbolic of his shed blood. And it also the, the bread or the wafer that he broke with thanksgiving that was symbolic of his broken body. And so he invites us to consider the symbols because they point us to the substance of Jesus uh, himself and the sacrifice that was made for us. If you're watching today and you're concerned that you're not eligible to eat and drink because there've been some missteps in your life along life's way, um, this celebration and observance is for people who um, need forgiveness and need help. Uh, it's not for those who have achieved some level of uh, religious attainment or um, moral perfection because it's just not possible this side of heaven. Those of us who put our saving faith in Jesus are invited to eat and drink. And um, it's in our eating and drinking that we find strength because we focus our attention uh, on Jesus and what was done for us and to remind ourselves of how loved we are. And there is a potency that happens when we eat and drink. It's a bit mysterious, but when we eat and drink, I do believe that there is something that God does in us, body, soul, mind, and spirit. And um, if you, again, if you're new to faith, we recite the Apostles' Creed. And if you're comfortable wherever you're viewing um, this gathering, uh, would you read this with me? This is the content of our faith, which is what we uh, hold to be true. Uh, a creed is simply a series of statements that we affirm together to be true. And this Apostles' Creed goes way back to the uh, early days of Christian faith, where the um, uh, early church fathers um, recounted what was most important. And so um, this brings us together as a Christian community. So um, would you join me by reciting the Apostles' Creed? This is what we believe to be true. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of, sin, of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, with high regard for the broken body of the Lord Jesus, we give thanks for what was done for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, that his mercy and his grace is enough for us. And we thank you that there is forgiveness held out for each one today. And the one who is eating and drinking possibly for the very first time, Lord, I thank you for their step of faith. Would you come to them in a fresh way today and give them everything they need? So would you join me with high regard for the broken body of the Lord Jesus and eat the wafer? And the cup. 
symbolic of a brand new covenant, a brand new agreement with God in Christ, whereby we are uh, no longer under um, the punishment of our own sins, but Jesus himself took that on for us and we are invited into an agreement with him. So let's drink from the cup, symbolic of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to invite our host pastors to come back at this time.